Hello, and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson, co-host of CBS This Morning. At 12.45 on June 3rd, John Kennedy prepared to hobble on stage for his first high-stakes summit with the Soviet leader. The 44-year-old president was at a disadvantage globally and locally. Globally, the U.S. still had trouble sitting after the deep pantsing and spanking at the Bay of Pigs. Closer to home, Kennedy's back ached and would not relent. He wore a corset to keep him aligned like a breadstick and asked his doctor for a preparation. Before he could start needling the Russian leader, he needed his own needle with the ready medication that was his constant traveling companion. The doctor gave him a shot. Khrushchev arrived, squat-legged and proud. On his breast, the 67-year-old leader wore two medals. How are you? Glad to see you, said Kennedy, about as stiff as he was standing. Khrushchev aligned the little sausages at the end of his plump, angry fist, and the two men shook hands. Another handshake, shouted the photographers, who either had not captured the first one or whose pleas rendered a verdict on the inadequacy of the stubby first pass. Three, two, one. It was fitting that the summit in Vienna would start with a busted play. It was, after all, one long busted play. When the two days of meetings were over, Kennedy collapsed on a couch, pulled his hat over his eyes, and confided to the journalist Scotty Reston about Khrushchev. He just beat the hell out of me, so I've got a terrible problem. What the hell had happened? What had put the wind up Kennedy so? We'll get into that terrible problem and the rest of it in a minute. But first, are you a fan of the Political Gab Fest? Of course you are. That's why you're listening to Whistle Stop. Well, the Political Gab Fest is having a live show outside Philadelphia on July 18th. Go to slate.com slash live to get yourself to the theater for a live show. Mr. Catledge, members of the American Society, newspaper editors, ladies and gentlemen, the president of a great democracy such as ours, and the editors of great newspapers, such as yours, owe a common obligation to the people. An obligation to present the facts, to present them with candor, and to present them in perspective. It is with that obligation in mind that I have decided in the last 24 hours to discuss briefly at this time the recent events in Cuba. Our whistle stop today is April 20th. 1961, President Kennedy is speaking to the Society of Newspaper Editors at Washington's Statler Hilton Hotel. Kennedy is addressing for the first time the fumble, stumble, and bumble of the Bay of Pigs invasion, which had recently collapsed into a tower of defeat three days earlier. A leftover operation of the Eisenhower administration, Kennedy went along with the attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro's communist government. In 72 hours, the raid achieved greatness only in its accumulation of implausible failures. U.S. bombers, painted to look like the Cuban Air Force, were discovered almost immediately after the first bombing run, where they had almost completely failed to hit Castro's airfield. Pictures of the massed U.S. planes appeared in the papers. U.S. pilots flying planes from Nicaragua forgot to set their watches to sync with Cuba time. That meant the air umbrella Kennedy had ordered to protect those pilots wasn't there to protect them from the rain of fire from Castro's T-33s, which cut the planes to ribbons. 
On the beaches, the rebels were rain-soaked, light on ammunition and hoarse from making urgent and unanswered appeals for backup. The Cuban government, for its part, had lots of backup. Soviet 122-millimeter howitzers and Russian T-34 tanks thinned the numbers of the opposition quickly. The 72-hour battle was a proxy war, and the U.S. had lost. This required a proxy speech, which is what Kennedy had come to deliver to the newspaper editors who presidents sought to woo in those days because they honored their place in the democratic system. There was another audience for Kennedy's speech as well, however. The president was pushing words out into the ballroom of editors, but he hoped translators would pretty quickly turn them into Russian for Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian leader in the Kremlin. This is not the first time in either ancient or recent history that a small band of freedom fighters has engaged the armor of totalitarianism. It is not the first time that communist tanks have rolled over gallant men and women fighting to redeem the independence of their homeland. Nor is it by any means the final episode in the eternal struggle of liberty against tyranny anywhere on the face of of the globe, including Cuba itself. It was a tough stance from a young, weakened president. Here's how Richard E. Welsh put it in Response to Revolution, the United States and the Cuban Revolution, 1959-1961. Talking about Kennedy here, Welsh says he now took the opportunity to set the guidelines for press reaction to the Bay of Pigs debacle, and in the process to direct public anger against the victorious Castro. He would not exhibit contrition but resolve and stand forth not as the apologetic sponsor of an abortive filibustering expedition, but as the reincarnation of Winston Churchill during the Battle of Britain. We will fight on the beaches. Kennedy could not show weakness. In the spring and summer of 1961, the Cold War was hot and getting hotter, and the young president worried that weakness would invite risk-taking by the Russians or Russian allies. The American presidential succession was like a pro-wrestling tap-out in the national security realm. Eisenhower had left the ring, and his successor was meant to keep the battle going. This presented Kennedy with two problems. He had to buck up his support at home by reminding Americans about the struggle against communism, and he had to throw a brush-back pitch at the Russians— while on his heels after a defeat in Cuba. It was the kind of complexity that might one day lead a journalist looking at the affairs from the distance of history to mix a wrestling metaphor and a baseball metaphor. Kennedy reminded American audiences of the stakes in the struggle against communism and its chief sponsor, Russia. Now it should be clear that this is no longer enough, that our security may be lost piece by piece, country by country, without the firing of a single missile or the crossing of a single border. Kennedy's message from Moscow had to go beyond tough words, though. He would have to stare down Khrushchev, which, as far as that goes, would have been pretty easy, because despite back trouble, Kennedy was the taller man. But this wasn't simply a tale of the tape. Kennedy had to show the Soviet leader face-to-face that he was confident, strong, and had not been licked. Good thing they already had a meeting on the schedule. In February, the two countries had decided that their leaders would meet in Vienna, Austria. After the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy briefly considered canceling the meeting, but he knew right away that that would be interpreted as a sign of weakness. This would be the seventh meeting of the two countries after the Second World War, and this was in the high time of summitry, which which is to say that it was a major feature of U.S. diplomacy. It's not really that way anymore. Aside, by the way... 
about the definition of the word summit. It's believed to have been suggested by Britain's wartime prime minister, Winston Churchill, who proposed, quote, a meeting at the summit for himself, Premier Stalin, and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to coordinate war strategy. They haggled a bit, and that first summit was held November 1943 in Tehran. The agenda was exclusively on World War II problems and how they would cut up things in the fighting of the war. In the spring of 2018, the meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un was much in the news, of course, but it was a bit of a historical aberration. It was in the news for being a summit, and that makes us think of the previous summits, but it was different, and that's what I mean by historical aberration. In the year 2018, we live in an age of non-state threats, really, al-Qaeda and ISIS. But during the Cold War, the threat of nuclear annihilation led to regular high-stakes summits between the leaders of the two countries that could turn each other into glowing rubble. So this raises an interesting question about the comparisons between then and now. A lot of the criticism of Donald Trump's handling of the North Korean summit surrounded the idea that he had given Kim Jong-un a boost of prestige. Here was a murderous dictator who'd poisoned his own uncle and kept hundreds of thousands of people in the gulags. And the American president, the moral leader of the free world, as some people conceive the office, was treating him like an equal. Leaving aside the moral question of the moment for treating a person like that as an equal— Does the U.S. want to be in the business of giving the Betty Crocker seal of approval uh, to Kim Jong-un? There is this question of what what does prestige mean in a summit in this day and age? During the Cold War, giving prestige to your adversary had repercussions outside the specific negotiations because there were other players and there was a long-term struggle that had to be kept in mind when you were fighting for the temporary gains of of a temporary negotiation. Too much prestige given in one negotiation would slop over, give a boost to communism in the global fight between communism and capitalism. So as we think about prestige and symmetry during the Cold War era, we have to think about what those terms mean now. And what does it mean, again, leaving aside this moral question, to give prestige to a country? Perhaps it's a perfectly worthy thing to give them since you're no longer engaged in this global ideological struggle. Giving prestige doesn't cost you what it used to. Maybe. Something for you to think about at home. These Cold War meetings were tense negotiations over nuclear weapons, proxy wars, spheres of influence, and national interest, all of which played out in the body language of the two leaders. What flowed in the personal space between the two was often described in terms of prestige. If a country had it, prestige acted as a kind of shield against challenges from the other country. It also sent a signal to allies. To maintain the hard line, if a president was considered tough, you didn't dare challenge the country. If a president showed weakness, however... As Kennedy reminded his audience, Chamberlain had shown at Munich with Hitler in 1938, you invite invasions and mayhem. A win on the world stage also discouraged countries from forming alliances with your enemy and renewed invitations to countries to side with your team in the global struggle between communism and capitalism. And that struggle was taking place everywhere, as Kennedy explained at the Statler Hilton. Clearer than ever before, he said. We face a relentless struggle in every corner of the globe that goes far beyond the clash of armies and even nuclear armaments. So what was on the agenda besides the strutting and showing of strong chin in Vienna? First, the question of Berlin. The Soviets were pressing for a peace treaty in Germany that would, in effect, terminate the Western military occupation of West Berlin. And it it would essentially neutralize that sector. Soviet controls over the air, rail, and highway, links between West Germany and West Berlin— would be turned over to the East Germans. This meant basically bringing Germany into the Russian sphere of influence, and this would make Germany a geographical cushion against aggression from the West. The Russians cared a great deal about this because, of course, Germany's record during World War II. 
So essentially what, what Moscow was calling a peace treaty was essentially an agreement that would bring West Berlin into the sphere of influence of East Berlin and bring it under Soviet domination. That was the series of actions the U.S. thought. The U.S. wanted reunification through free elections uh, and refused to give East Germany control over the supply lifelines to the 2.2 million people of West Berlin. The second Soviet demand was for something called tripartite control. They wanted certain international control organizations like the United Nations to be administered by unanimous decisions of a basically tripart administration consisting of the West, a representative from the West, a communist representative, and then a neutral person representing from a neutral country. The U.S. So the U.S. contended that majority rule had to obtain because you couldn't give veto rights to communist members and that because it would basically paralyze the work of any of these organizations. The Soviet position was that the rule of unanimity, unanimity, I should say, must be enforced. Again, all three must agree because the neutrals would tend to vote in most cases with the West. So tripartite control issues was it was basically the Soviets saying we want fairer umpires who aren't um, going to gang up against the communists. And they wanted this not just for the United Nations and the decisions that it made, but they wanted it also for overseeing disarmament agreements uh, and also the disposition of Laos. Laos being a question of whether the communists were being unfairly shut out as that country reunified. Soviet Union also wanted to replace Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld with a triumvirate rulership of the UN. Uh, Khrushchev contended that Hammarskjöld was acting with prejudice on behalf of the West. Now, of course, the UN US wanted to retain the secretary, uh, Hammarskjöld, the UN secretariat, because he was thinking about the West and did have the West's interests in mind. So what do we know about Kennedy as a leader? The, the rap against him going into this meeting was that he was too young and inexperienced. By the Bay of, in the Bay of Pigs demonstrated this. Even Eisenhower, his predecessor, raised this question in the press. Liberals suggested, actually, that Kennedy was too warlike. Counterintuitively, because they didn't, they didn't like the invasion of, of uh, Cuba. Counterintuitively, the highest point of Kennedy's approval ratings came in the wake of his disaster with the Bay of Pigs. And it's amazing when you think about it. His, his, basically, his numbers went up in the wake of the episode because people believed, and I say this without without confidence because it feels like there's a lot, a lot of witchcraft and folk wisdomry around this question of why his numbers went up after the Bay of Pigs, but it has traditionally been held that people liked the fact that he took uh, the blame for the Bay of Pigs. In any event, his approval ratings in the Gallup poll were 83%. It's just like Eisenhower, Kennedy said. The worse I do, the more popular I get. So we should stop to pause here. I don't think there are a lot of data points on this, but this is at least one instance when a president failed and the country didn't blame him or hound him into the ground. Now, of course, we have presidents being blamed for things over which they have no direct control. Here was one in which Kennedy, of course, had direct control. So it's worth noting that that, in terms of the Bay of Pigs, is an extraordinary historical comparison to what we have uh, today. And what did the country think of this meeting, planned meeting in, in uh, Vienna with the Soviet leader on, in the early part of June? The LA Times had a piece called Many Pin Hopes on Kennedy, written on the 2nd of June by Samuel Lubell. Kennedy won't be walked on like Ike was, declared the wife of a Cleveland auto worker. That Irishman is a Rocky fighter. About a third of the people interviewed for the LA Times piece, people interviewed in eight states, objected to the Vienna meeting. 
but mostly because they thought all summit summit conferences, quote, are a farce and, quote, there's no use talking to the Russians. Here's a quote from that piece. I hate to have the president deal with Khrushchev in person, declared one Akron salesman. We should send gangsters to talk to him. Only a small minority oppose the Vienna parlay, wrote the L.A. Times, because, quote, our bargaining position is bad or, quote, it will give Khrushchev a chance to crow over Cuba. Many more people, persons feel, said the Times, that it is the right time to clear the air and, quote, warn the Russians not to push too far. A clerk in New York City demanded, why wait? Kennedy can be as tough now as he could later. Overwhelming majority, said the piece, replied no to the question, would you trust an agreement that was reached with the Russians? We're now going to lay in for some heavy quoting from the crisis years by Michael Beschloss, which is responsible for a lot of the color in this account. Beschloss writes that in preparing for the Vienna meeting, Kennedy was very much like Nixon in his affection for hard study and uh, preparation as a way to win the day. During the last week of May, writes Beschloss, the president lay in his four-postered bed with a moist heating pad under his back. He poured over galleys over the Grand Tactician, a new Khrushchev biography by a Soviet emigre named Lazar Pistrak. And also Kennedy read black leather-bound State Department and CIA briefing books. The president read transcripts of Khrushchev's conversations with Eisenhower, Nixon, Stevenson, Humphrey, and the Iowa corn grower Roswell Garst, who was a friend of his, and a conversation he had with the United Auto Workers leader, Walter Ruther, about whom uh, Chairman Khrushchev had said, and to his face, he had said, (laughs) you are like a nightingale. It closes its eyes when it sings and sees nothing and hears nobody but itself. This is not exactly throwing shade. It's just a pretty much straight up insult, but it is a very clever insult. So keep this in your back pocket, whistle stop cadets. Kennedy wasn't just hitting the books for his own edification. According to William Manchester, Kennedy had been told that Khrushchev had been disdainful of Eisenhower's failure to bone up on his homework before his two summits with the American president. Whenever a tough question came up, Ike had had to turn to aides for answers. Kennedy decided that the important talks would be just between the two of them and an interpreter. Kennedy's preparations extended beyond his briefing books. After the Bay of Pigs, he reorganized his national security staff. McGeorge Bundy's status as national security advisor was upgraded considerably. He was moved from the relatively humble lodgings of the executive office building. He was moved in uh, on the other side of West Executive Avenue uh, to the West Wing, West Executive Avenue, which is essentially uh, just a parking lot. It should be noted that McGeorge Bundy, in addition to having two last names, was a Republican. He was also the youngest Harvard dean and an egghead who had scored highest on the Yale entrance exams. Kennedy liked academics, and Bundy was known for his ability to cut through the BS from politicians, but also to operate the circus of competing interests in the Washington Carnival. The current administration would have approved of McGeorge Bundy's theories about press relations, he told White House press sec- the White House press secretary, a communique should say nothing in such a way as to feed the press without deceiving them. One final aside about Bundy. Kennedy thought about him for secretary of state, but at 41, he decided Bundy was too young. But it is interesting uh, to me as we think about the evolution of the presidency and the desire Nixon had to bring uh, decisions closer to him and therefore have Kissinger be the locus of his national security power and not Secretary of State Rogers. 
that Kennedy would have contemplated sending Bundy to state, Kennedy's conception of the job, and perhaps this was the norm that we need to measure Nixon's behavior against, and in fact it was, was that the Secretary of State was a stronger post. So Kennedy wants to put his strong guy in Secretary of State, decides he's too young. Of course, I, uh, Nixon decides let's marginalize the Secretary of State and run the whole thing out of the White House, which has been the trend, and even today. Here's how William Manchester put the upgrade for McBundy. Manchester wrote, Next time the forces of world communism plotted a blow at the free world, the United States would be on guard. If they dared subvert the anti-communist government of another weak little country anywhere, they would meet a firmer will. The White House was ready. Bundy was ready. The war room was ready. The hotlines were plugged in. The aggressors would be taught a lesson they would never forget. So what kind of a man was Kennedy going to meet in Vienna? If you know about Khrushchev at all, you might know that about his shoe-banging incident. I couldn't exactly remember why he took off the old Doc Martin and gave it a walloping, but I, if I ever knew in the first place. It goes back to this triumvirate idea. Khrushchev, in his visit to the UN in 1960, blamed the UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, calling him a tool of colonial powers. In the famous speech, he floated this Troika idea, Khrushchev did, and it was named, by the way, after the Russian wagon that's drawn by three horses abreast. Anyway, as he was railing against Hammerschold, he took off his old hush puppy and pounded the death in ry- rhythm as he made his points. The General Assembly was sent into an uproar, which is funny because the General Assembly is essentially designed not to get into an uproar. But anyway, trying to restore order, the Irishman, the Assembly President, Frederick Boland, who was presiding at the time, banged his gavel so hard in response to Khrushchev and the uproar that he broke the gavel, causing Boland to say, Aye, if I had me a shillelagh, it ne'er would have broken. He didn't say any of that. The chaos delighted the chairman, of course. Returning to Moscow, he crowed, How shaky the United Nations is. It's the beginning of the end. This was Khrushchev's way. He was an industrial blowhard. Here's what the L.A. Times wrote. In uh, the 3rd of June, 1961, it is seen as very probable that the Soviet leader will continue to wear an amiable attitude during the brief hours the two will be together. But it is decidedly dangerous to predict Mr. Khrushchev's moods, for he uses them expertly to put any adversary off guard and off balance. As Michael Beschloss writes, this is exactly what the CIA was telling Kennedy. This is from Beschloss's The Crisis Years. The CIA warned the president that Khrushchev might deliberately try to knock him off balance at Vienna. As the briefing paper noted, this was an old Khrushchev trick. In Moscow, he had once arrived late for an American television interview, ordered the cameras turned off, and launched into a tirade against the methods of the American press. Just when the production seemed doomed, Khrushchev told the crew to proceed and became completely charming for the interview. Throughout the program, the reporters, not Khrushchev, were on the defensive. The agency submitted the findings of more than a dozen internists, psychiatrists, and psychologists to the president in his briefing packet. The group had been secretly convened in 1960 to assess uh, the, the health of Khrushchev's noggin. The experts had watched films of the Soviet leader in which he greeted Indians, dozed off during ceremonies, removed his shoe at the United Nations. And after scrutinizing that, plus his telephone intercepts, letters, speeches— etc., the wise guys at the agency concluded that the Soviet leader was a, quote, chronic optimistic opportunist 
I don't have any idea what that means. One member of the project, a social psychiatrist named Bryant Wedge, warned Kennedy by letter that efforts to change Khrushchev's mind about important issues were useless. There can be only one mode of argument to state the realities of the Western positions in unmistakable terms so that miscalculation will be avoided and practical accommodation achieved. Explanation as to why U.S. positions are taken on any other than pragmatic grounds will fall on deaf ears. That all was from the crisis years by Michael Beschloss. A CIA profile noted that Khrushchev's speech is larded with peasant proverbs and even biblical phrases. He is at his folksiest best in fields of a collective farm, dispensing advice to the assembled peasants on the best means of planting potatoes or corn. Although capable of extraordinary frankness and in his own eyes, no doubt usually honest, Khrushchev was also a gambler and dissembler, expert in calculation bluffing. While priding himself on his realism and particularly his mastery of the realities of the balances of power, he is imbued with the idea that he can utilize Soviet power to move the world towards communism during his lifetime. What interested Khrushchev was the president he was young and inexperienced, and he'd stumbled badly. Kennedy seemed unsure of himself. This looked like a good chance to pounce. Khrushchev was, of course, himself under pressure from hardliners at home. Stalinists who believed that the only way to get what you wanted was to go get it, grab it, and to be abusive and intimidating in doing so. And, of course, this warmed Khrushchev's heart because that's kind of the guy he was. That's why Stalin had admired it in him. It's what gave him that great aura of being a kind of a primal dinosaur-like character in his impulses and behaviors. Here's a piece called To the Summit by William Henry Chamberlain comparing the two men. There is a certain drama in the mere confrontation of the two personalities. Nikita Khrushchev is a successful survivor of the toughest political apprentice school in the world, Stalin's dictatorship, following very much the pattern of Stalin's own advance to supreme power although as yet abstaining from his predecessor's sanguinary purges. I love the idea of a sanguinary purge. Khrushchev has outlasted and outraced all his competitors in the war of the Stalinite succession. Khrushchev has ruled long enough to take his place in history as one of the three autocrats of all the Soviet republicans following Lenin and Stalin. Politically, he has changed the Soviet Union from from the methods of a paranoid terrorist tyranny to those of a strictly regimented police state. His name has become identified at home with the experiments in expanding agriculture and decentralizing the cumbersome stale industry, industrial bureaucracy. With achievements in space exploration and rocketry and abroad with a subtler and perhaps more dangerous method of pushing towards the triumph of communism than Stalin's cruder and more brutal acts. The American president is a younger man by a generation, highly educated, while Khrushchev was brought up in the school of hard knocks and with his main political ambitions ahead of him rather than behind him. The confrontation of these two men as powerful in their time as Napoleon and Alexander I were when they met on a raft in the river of Neiman to redraw the map of Europe in 1807 against the backdrop of old Vienna, once a power center in its own right, now the capital of a small state that only desires to be left alone in peace clearly possesses its element of drama. Before he landed in Vienna, the president stopped by in France, and that became a triumph for the First Lady. Eleven years earlier, she'd been a student at the Sorbonne, and now she arrived with truckloads of luggage, jewels filling the inner compartments. 
and a long line of staff that included Europe's leading hairdresser. De Gaulle could scarcely take his eyes off her. The French press cried that she was charming, ravishing. Arriving at a press conference, President of the United States Jack Kennedy said, I do not think it altogether inappropriate for me to introduce myself. I am the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. This line was much repeated. Afterward, as a sign of his charm. And so it was at that press conference that the president teed up his meeting in the next day in Vienna. He said, there are many in the West who, taking the long view, talk of the decline of the West, and they search hither and yon in order to document their case. I do not believe the West is in decline. I believe the West is in the ascendancy. During the campaign, pointed out the Washington Post in Chalmers Roberts' piece, Mr. Kennedy had said over and over that he was tired of everybody waiting to hear what Khrushchev was going to say, that it was time for people to be anxious to know what the American president was going to say. The whole world sat at the edge of their seat waiting to see what Khrushchev would say and what Kennedy would say. And as as Kennedy left Paris, we put our story on pause at the end of Act One of the Kennedy-Khrushchev meeting in Vienna. Stay tuned for the next Whistle Stop, which will conclude our two-act story of Kennedy and Khrushchev in Vienna. And so that is it for this edition of the Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Send us an email if you'd like to whistlestop at slate.com. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. The executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Our whistlestop crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Henson is like the mill wheel that grinds Brian's good wheat. We thank her for providing so much help in the research for this. And thanks to Dustin Gervais and Alan Pang at CBS Radio who have hooked me up and made all things go in order to record this. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the first episode of the two parts on Kennedy and Khrushchev in Vienna. I'm John Dickerson of CBS This Morning. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Sources included in this podcast include William Manchester's Glory in the Dream, Michael Beschloss's The Crisis Years, Kennedy and Khrushchev, 1960 to 1963. David Reynolds' Summits, Six Meetings That Shaped the 20th Century. Ben Bradley's Conversations with Kennedy. Robert Dalek's Camelot's Court, Inside the Kennedy White House. Richard E. Welsh's Response to Revolution, The United States and the Cuban Revolution, 1959 to 1961.